As I record this podcast, Russia has recently invaded Ukraine. As a professor of international relations, I should probably dedicate an episode of the podcast to the conflict, and I hope to do so in the next couple of weeks. But in addition to being an IR professor, I'm also a human being, and this week has been rough. I'm recording from my southern studio, i.e. my bedroom, with not great equipment because I'm dealing with some home repair issues, so apologies for any sound quality problems. I'm also exhausted from this pandemic, from the additional emotional burden of taking care of or at least being more responsive to student issues and problems, from taking on too much and trying to be too many things for too many people. So this week, because I really need a break, I'm speaking to a friend and colleague about our profession, what we would do differently, and what we're going to do moving forward. So let's get started in the politics classroom, recorded on February 24th, 2022. Welcome to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Kate Floros, and you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Floros. I'm thrilled to welcome into the classroom today, Professor Heather Elko McKibben, an Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Davis. Dr. McKibben earned a bachelor's degree in both music and political science from the University of Pittsburgh, as well as a master's and PhD in political science, also from the University of Pittsburgh. She's the author of many articles and a solo authored book, State Strategies in International Bargaining, Play by the Rules or Change Them, and is the co-author of an intro to international relations textbook, Essentials of International Relations, now in its ninth edition. Professor McKibben, welcome to the Politics Classroom. Thanks for having me. So we are in the middle, or hopefully maybe the end of a pandemic. So do you have any successful coping strategies that you have employed for the pandemic not to drive you nuts? I tend to be a hermit, and so the pandemic didn't drive me too nuts. (laughs) But one thing that I have learned is how to, in my profession, to deal with students better. I didn't teach for a lot of the pandemic for a variety of personal reasons, but I came in with the pandemic well underway and people affected by that. And so I think that I'm thinking a lot more about pedagogical issues uh, when I was teaching online than I did before. And I think that that has helped me in terms of hopefully trying to be a better teacher. And then the Russia, Ukraine, adding on to everything. I had a student write me this morning asking if we could talk about it in national law class, which I'm teaching right now, because Putin has used Article 51 to validate his invasion of Ukraine. And I was like, yes, yes, I am flexible. I can be flexible because of the pandemic. So yes, we can do that. I will change the schedule. Um, So I think the pandemic has also made people a little more relaxed in terms of 
trying to do everything perfectly and always the same. Yeah. And just for our listeners, can you explain what Article 51 is and why someone might use it to justify invading another country? Oh, Article 51 of the UN Charter is the article about self-defense and the ability to use force against another state in self-defense. And Putin's justification for invading Ukraine in his speech the other day was that the eastern provinces of Ukraine, where they're being oppressed basically by Ukraine, asked for Russian help. They needed help in self-defense. There were human rights crimes being committed, et cetera. He even used the word genocide. So he's basically saying he's aiding these eastern Ukrainian provinces, which he has recognized as independent entities to help them in self-defense against Ukraine. Okay. I, I can't talk about that right now. This, see, this is the problem with teaching about war is that you need to be ready to talk about war when there's war, but it's super dead depressing. It is. Yeah. Okay. I always talk to my guests on, in the classroom about their path, their career path specifically, and you majored as an undergrad in both music and political science. So what led you to choose those two majors together, given that I don't think there's very much in common between them? And what kind of career were you thinking about where one or the other of them would be a good major to start your career on? So I majored in music because I played the violin since I was four. And so I was very interested in learning more about both the musicology aspect of it. So how to understand chord progressions and things like that, as well as composition. I was very interested in composition of, of music. And so I, I majored in music partly because I was interested in those things given my past history. Political science, I kind of fell into I had originally wanted to be a writer and I was going to major in English hmm. writing in particular. And then when I got to English writing classes, it turned out that when you wrote something, you had to present it to the class and talk about it. And I did not like speaking in class. And so I decided that major was not for me. Hmm. So I, I switched to political science because of one class I had taken an intro to American government and I had enjoyed the professor and I thought the dynamics of the class were really nice uh, and fit me well. And so I continued to take political science courses and so also decided uh, to major in that. In terms of my career goals, I never intended to be necessarily a musician. So music was more just a fun thing for me to do mm -hmm. as a major. And when I learned that I wasn't going to be an English writer because I wasn't going to take English writing classes, I thought a couple options. One was to be a lawyer. So I considered law school after okay. I graduated. And the other, I was thinking of working in like a think tank or, or something like that, which I could use um, my political science degree for. So uh, that's kind of how my approach evolved from going in as a supposed English major to music and political science. Well, you didn't become either a lawyer or work at a think tank, but you did pursue advanced degrees in political science. So what, what led you in that direction and what led you to choose professoring over something else? That's another, it just kind of fell into it story. I guess all my stories are, I fell into it stories. That's how um, it works sometimes. It is. And I think being ready for that is something that might be helpful for your students out there listening. You never know 
what's going to happen. Right. But I thought maybe law school. So the year after I graduated from college, I got a job at a law firm. I thought I'll give it a try and see how it is. So I got a job, basically a paralegal job without having a paralegal degree, but I did the work basically of a paralegal and was miserable. I worked in class action lawsuits over asbestos cases. Mm. And so first of all, that's really depressing. Sure. Um, second of all, I realized that when you're a lawyer, a lot of times, even not just in class action lawsuits, you just do the same thing over and over and over and over. And it's like you memorize the law, but you don't get to think about and make decisions about anything. Okay. And so I found that really intellectually unstimulating. So literally two weeks into my law firm career, I was applying to graduate school <laughs> and went to graduate school the next year. So I worked at the law firm for about 10 months before I was like, no more for me. But it was two weeks before I decided no more for me. Nice. Well, why not then become a law professor? Because you'd have to go to law school to become a law school professor? Well, I never considered being a professor. I was interested in being a lawyer at first. Right. Um, and in particular, patent law. I thought I would be interested in that. But I did a little bit of patent law work while I was at the law firm to help out. And no, that's not for me either. That's even worse than asbestos class action lawsuits. Patent law? Really? What was yeah. exciting about, what were you imagining was going to be interesting about patent law? My dad was an engineer and he wrote a lot of patents. Uh. Um, and so he was always talking about working with the patent lawyer and it sounded like exciting to do these new things. And really the patent lawyer just does commas and periods and boring stuff. Whereas the people who are innovating are actually the people having fun. So I, I learned that very quickly when I worked in the patent office for a couple months or a couple weeks. Okay. So you didn't like lawyering. And so you, you went to grad school in political science, but you said you weren't ever expecting to be a professor and yet here you are. So what changed? So when I got to graduate school, my first day I went in and my professor was teaching the research design for intro students. And he was talking about all this stuff about getting a PhD and how hard it is and how hard it is to get a job in the PhD field. And I'm sitting there going, well, that's all well and good, but that's not me he's talking to. So I went to the graduate advisor afterwards and I said, well, you know, is there an orientation for the people who are getting a master's degree? And he said, no, this is a PhD program. You're in the PhD program. If you want to get a terminal master's degree, you should go downstairs to the policy school. But if you do that, you'll lose your scholarship <laughs> to the political science department. And so I said, you know what? I think I'll keep that scholarship. <laughs> so I will continue the path of a PhD in political science. And so that's kind of how I ended up on this path. So I applied for the master's thinking I would work at a think tank, which was a plan at some point in my life, mm -hmm. um, but then ended up getting a PhD. And partway through the PhD program, I realized I liked a lot the type of thinking and the intellectual stimulation of doing political science. And so I was actually interested in getting the PhD, not just hijacked by losing my scholarship to get the PhD. But the reason you didn't major in English literature or English writing was because you didn't want to get up in front of people and talk in class. And that's basically half of your job description now. 
And you had a talk in graduate seminars as well. Yeah. So my first year of graduate school, I was up all night the night before a seminar. What am I going to say? How am I going to say it? How should I like enter into the conversation? I just have to say one thing, just one thing each class. And that's what I kept telling myself. And so I would, I would say one thing every class. And that started to help me get over not being able to speak. So by my second year, I was able to say like two or three things in class. Whoa. Um, and by my third year, it was probably three. So wow. forcing myself to kind of deal with that issue because I wanted to stay in the program kind of helped me to get better at speaking in front of people. That didn't mean I was ready to teach a class, mm-hmm. um, but I started small. I taught a summer class at night for about 20 students. And so it went from a seminar of about 10 to students of about 20. And so it wasn't as big of a jump as it could have been. But then when I got my job, it was 120 and that was small. So that was a little bit of a shock. Well, you came in a year behind me, but we graduated together because you are brilliant. But I seem to recall in the process of defending your dissertation that you had some trouble with your committee members. So I don't know how much you want to talk about that, but I think that there are a lot of graduate students out there who don't know how to deal with their committees and think that I'm the only person who has, who's having trouble with my committee. So A, if you'd like to share that story, I would love to hear it. And B, or instead of A, if you have any advice for graduate students who might have a difficult committee member or whatever the case may be, what you, what advice you might give? Sure. I don't mind sharing that story. I'll start with the advice though, and then kind of get to why I'm, I'm saying that. And I think my advice would be don't choose your committee member just based on name. You want to have people that you feel comfortable working with, that you feel you can work with, as opposed to this is the most famous person in my department. If their name's not on my dissertation, there's something wrong. And I think that's the advice I would give. Choose based on who you can work with, not based on what you think you need to do to get somewhere, because it's going to be a better dissertation if you feel comfortable writing it. And to some extent, that's how my experience was. I did have an outside member of my committee who I worked very closely with. He was great. Uh, We had a lot of back and forth. He really kind of directed the dissertation for the most part. The other three committee members were Pitt professors. And so I had two co-chairs and one of the co-chairs, because I was technically working in comparative politics, Mm -hmm. even though my dissertation was really an international relations type of an issue. She said, well, you're in comparative politics. It would be a bad idea to do comparative politics without having this particular professor on your committee, who's a very famous comparativist Mm -hmm. professor. And so I had him on my committee and he was very difficult. And part of the problem was that I was writing and working with um, my outside IR professor, and it was clearly becoming an international relations dissertation, which is what I had wanted. But as a the comparativist, I kept sending him, he was on my committee, I wanted his input. I kept sending him the chapters, sending him the chapters, and I literally heard nothing. Mm -hmm. So I just continued along my path for, you know, pursuing what I was interested in pursuing. And we get to the dissertation defense, and he finally read it. And he was very 
upset. Yeah. Yes. He printed it all out and it was probably two and a half inches thick. It was like 500 pages or something. And he threw it on the table and he said, this is not what we talked about. This is not a comparative politics dissertation. And then went on to kind of be huffy while I answered questions for everybody else. And my chair expressed concern. I didn't know this concern that he wouldn't even sign off on the dissertation, that it would be a split committee decision, which it ended up not being. But the reason he ended up on my committee was not because he was someone I felt like I wanted to work with or could work with. It was that he was a big name and they told me to because he was a big name. And I think that was Well, looking back, that was clearly a mistake. Mm -hmm. And there's other people who I knew I worked with well in the department that I would have asked if he hadn't been kind of given to me as the the option. Mm -hmm. So after we graduated at the same time, I went off to a career that didn't work out for me. You in the first year had a postdoc at Princeton. Tell me about what that was like, whether you think that that was useful both in getting the book going and in getting a job? So can you just talk about like the role of a postdoc? Sure. So most people, when they get postdocs, don't teach classes. Some do, but most don't. So you just have this whole time to do your research. And that was very important helpful to me in writing the book because I had to do so much more development and expansion theoretically and empirically in the project. I needed that time. And had I been teaching a full load of courses at the same time, I was trying to hit the ground running with this, advancing the dissertation into the book. I don't think I would have had the time. And so that one year where I could do nonstop research was probably integral in my ability to get the book done on time. In terms of getting the job, I think I should have done a better job at the postdoc of networking with other scholars, graduate students, professors, people who came in and gave talks at the department. I'm not good at networking. And small talk is something that I've had to learn over time. And some people have been very helpful in teaching me that, but I'm still not great at small talk. And so I think had I networked better, it would have been a much better experience in terms of helping me in my career. I think that the experience in the postdoc was important in terms of getting the job because it allowed me to have a job talk paper that was developed Mm. beyond the dissertation. And so what I was able to present for my job talk was much further along theoretically and empirically than my dissertation had been. And that postdoc gave me the time that I needed to be able to do that and get a job talk together. Okay. And then off you went to California and you had classes to prep that you had never taught before, a ridiculous number of students, teaching assistants to supervise, new colleagues to meet and have small talk with, a bunch of other departmental obligations. So did you feel like you were prepared to step into that? And what did you find most challenging about the transition from graduate student slash full-time researcher to junior faculty member? So I think the hardest transition part was teaching a graduate seminar. 
I taught a graduate seminar the fall of my first year. Oh, wow. And no one had taught a graduate seminar in international cooperation in years at UC Davis. And so basically every IR student took it. So I had 17 students in a graduate seminar from first years to third years. And I think the biggest challenge was I didn't feel like I was any different than the like advanced grad students that were in my class. And what I often tell grad students, and, and I'm not, right, is that they're future colleagues and third year graduate students are very advanced in their understanding of the material and the literature and how political science works. And so, you know, there's no, all of a sudden there's a light bulb that comes up above your head and you know so much more when you get your PhD degree. It's not how it works. It's just a, a constant upward slope that will eventually plateau. And, you know, I'm just a little further up the slope than some other people that I was teaching. And I, I found that very difficult to get used to. The undergraduates were a different challenge in that I don't particularly care for talking in front of large groups of people. Mm -hmm. And I got my small class of 120. Yeah. Um, they were going to ramp me up to the 360 intro class. Have um, you taught so 360? Yes. Oh my God. Okay. Yes. Usually it's about 2.40 because they give me the 7.30 in the morning time slot right. <laughs> because I like to teach early and that doesn't fill 360 people usually. So they usually give me 2.40, but that was a big challenge to learn sure. how to lecture as opposed to engage with the students or try to engage with the students and yeah. have a discussion when there's hundreds of students sitting out there and no one wants to talk in front of people any more than you do. Right. Um, and so that was a bit of a challenge. It was a lot of a challenge, actually. So those were two of the big transition issues that I found. Okay, so you got a job. Congratulations. Now you have to keep the job. And you're at a research university. One of the things that you have to do to keep the job is publish. So you had the benefit of the postdoc to get a head start on the book, what was the process like to know that you are going to be judged on a relatively frequent basis on your productivity while you're trying to write a book and articles at the same time and teach and do all these other things? So how was the junior faculty publish or perish process like? Extremely stressful. At UC Davis, we have what they call a step system. So every two years you come up for a merit review. So instead of coming up like a third year and then for tenure, every couple of years, you're constantly coming up for these reviews. And you, there's not a lot of time in two years really to get a publication out there. I mean, some of my articles took nine months to get reviews back the first mm -hmm. time. And so that's a very stressful um, situation. And the way I dealt with that stressful situation was that my work-life balance was completely off kilter. It was all work and no life for a long time. And that was very difficult for my husband to deal with. And, you know, I was just constantly working and constantly doing things. I wasn't getting as much done around the house. He wasn't getting a whole lot of my time. And he was really stressed out about me being so stressed out about getting tenure. And I mean, in all honesty, I probably almost lost my marriage over trying to get tenure and write that book. Wow. Um, and so 
I think I have a very different perspective now, not because I have tenure, but if I could do it all over again, I don't think I would have given up so much of my life for the job, which doesn't mean that that's not for everybody. But looking back, that might be something that I would have done differently. And had I not gotten tenure or had I gotten tenure, I don't know, but I, I probably would have tried to put more life in my work-life balance if I could do it again. Yeah. I don't think people think about that. You know, I don't remember anybody ever really talking about that in graduate school, about how to achieve that, that work-life balance, like knowing this pressure is always on you. So what can, what can we as professors do to help students understand that this is what they're getting themselves into without like crushing their hopes and dreams? I think that we need to be really honest about how much work it takes. So I had a student who wanted to go to graduate school and he was the best undergraduate student I'd ever had. And he had been doing academic graduate school type research for years that I had been supervising. And I still had a talk with him about, look, I know you like doing this research. I know you are excited about going to graduate school, but this is a almost like a lifelong commitment if this is what you want to pursue. And he, I mean, being that he wanted to go into academia and I said, you know, you need to be ready for that. And I think I should have talked more about my own issues mm-hmm. and I, and been more open about how hard it was for me. And I think in the future for both undergraduates who are interested in graduate school and academia and graduate students, I think sharing my experience should hopefully help inform them to make a better informed decision than they would had they only heard, oh, this is so great. And I love my job and I get to do all this research and it's fun. And I think being honest about the difficulties of it is important. I think one thing that doesn't happen as much in graduate school that we might want to try to do better is it doesn't have to be academia at all. It doesn't have to be a research academic job or a teaching academic job. It could be anything you want to do with your degree. You don't have to go into academia. And I think in a lot of graduate programs, it's you want to get a research job. You want to get a research job. You want to get a research job. And I think it's expanding a little bit now where do you want research or teaching, but it's still a lot of assumption that you're going to go into academia. And I think that, I mean, clearly academia isn't for everyone. Even if you're not trying to publish or perish, there's a lot to do when you're teaching at a liberal arts Mm -hmm. university that's very stressful Mm -hmm. and time consuming, and you can lose your work-life balance to that potential job too. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, being aware that there are nine to five jobs out there that you can be perfectly happy at if that's what you want, you don't have to go into, into academia. And most of the students that I have been on PhD committees for, many of them have not gone into academia. And I was like, you do what makes you happy. I don't, I don't care, you know, (laughs) what it is, right? Because I mean, one of the, one of the issues with graduate programs is they want to place students well, Mm -hmm. and they want to be able to say, oh, look, we got this student into this great academic position, you know, come train with us. And that's all well and good for the university, but if that's not, or the department, but if that's not what that student wants, it's a disservice to the student to think that way. And so I'm very open with my students about whatever you want to do with your PhD, you do it. And I don't care if it's 
teaching job, academia. I don't care if it's research job, academia. I don't care if it's not an academia. You need to do what's best for you. And I think being more open about that with graduate students is important. Yeah, I mean, so I'm on Twitter and follow a lot of academics and it seems like the pandemic has kind of just pushed people over the edge. Yeah, so a lot of people on Twitter, they're just kind of giving up in academia. And I'm wondering if that's because, I don't know, I often wonder, academia doesn't seem to have been made for people who don't have someone at home to do the housework and raise the kids and whatever, all that stuff. And I, I remember thinking, all of these dudes have their wives who are doing stuff. And I don't know. So do you think that the whole publisher parish, the whole way more hours a week than is healthy, is that just the nature of academia? Or is it based on a system that just doesn't work for women in particular, but caregivers in general or whatever the case may be. Like, do you think that academia needs to fundamentally shift what it expects or universities need to shift what they expect from their faculty? I think so, yes. I think that one thing that came with the pandemic was an understanding that a lot of people were having their children at home and they weren't getting a lot done Mm -hmm. uh, because they had to be full-time caregivers for their children. And Uh, universities in terms of their merit and tenure and and decisions like that were taking that into account. I think there's two problems. One that should have been realized a long time ago, because even if you don't have your children hundred percent of the time at home, that's time that you need to give them. You can't have the type of work like life imbalance that I had and have a child. So I think that's something that hopefully will carry beyond the pandemic, this realization that there's a life out there that people have that they need to be able to live and that it can affect your ability to get work done. So I hope the pandemic has helped with that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I would hope so too. I think the problem is though, that the people who have the power to make those changes are already the fully established people. And I don't think they're feeling the pain in the same way that junior folks are or, you know, more earlier in their career, younger folks are. I don't know. I'm constantly surprised, and I I guess I shouldn't be, but I'm constantly surprised by how many people lack empathy for their colleagues, for their students, and just think, like, suck it up, and if you can't suck it up, then maybe you shouldn't be here. I mean, I think it's systemic, And I don't know if university administrator, like what university administrator is going to say, yeah, I think we should lower our tenure standards to take into account that people should have a life. I don't know if that's going to happen. And even if a department wanted to do that, you know, if you, for tenure and promotion, you have to go through multiple layers. And even if your department has that attitude, it's unlikely that enough others in the university would, that it would make a difference. I don't know. I mean, I'm mostly happy with what I do, but I also feel like I do too much. <laughs> and and that's my fault because I keep saying yes, but I also think that no one's ever going to stop asking, right? No one's going to say like, oh yeah, Kate, she's doing too much. 
let's not ask her to do something, you know? I don't know. It just seems like if you're willing to give, they will take. Yes. I think that's absolutely the case. And that's why there's so many learn to say no advice that's given, especially to female faculty who tend to be worse at saying no than Hmm. male faculty is generally the understanding that I've seen. But if you don't say no, they're not going to say no for you. Yeah, You're right. And if you're a yes person, you're going to keep getting asked because they need someone who's going to say yes. Yeah. So I said no like once recently, and I was so proud of myself for saying no. It's, it's, it's hard. Welcome to the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. I'm Professor Floros, and my guest in the classroom today is University of California Davis Associate Professor of Political Science, Heather Elko McKibben. So a lot of people are talking about delivering more course content asynchronously, but I was never trained either in how to deliver content well in person, let alone doing it asynchronously. So A, why weren't we ever taught how to teach? And now that we may be switching modalities, like we need to now figure out a whole new way of presenting material. So I taught my first course when I was in graduate school and there was like a little mini class that they gave on how to write a syllabus. Which you wasn't due until like week nine or something. Right. Yes. And so I did use some, some of that in terms of updating my syllabus, but I mean, for me, as for a lot of people, I think it's just been a trial and error process. Um, And you just look at, well, what did my professors do when I was in graduate school, when I TA'd for them and kind of try to build on what they did for yourself. But really, I think it's a trial and error process because there's no teaching you how to teach that goes on um, in graduate school. R1 programs, because I think, like we talked about earlier, it's so much about the status of the program, which is based so much on research that the teaching kind of falls to the wayside. And those people that love teaching do really well. And those people who don't necessarily love teaching are kind of left floundering because they don't know what to do because they haven't really done a whole lot of that. We do have someone in our department that is specifically in tenure track teaching. Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of work on pedagogy in terms of teaching and does some seminars for and workshops for faculty as well as graduate students. And so I think that is a move in the right direction. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, sure. I took a workshop on his ideas about how to teach online because he had done some online teaching before. So when the pandemic was starting and people were starting to figure out or trying to figure out how to do this, he was someone who was a nice resource for us. Yeah, that is nice. I mean, at UIC, we have a new Center for the Advancement of Teaching Excellence, Kate, which I refer to as the other Kate. And they have workshops as well. But, you know, if you have an entire university population who's trial and erroring, you know, that's problematic. It's, just, it's also problematic because if our advisors and professors learn that way, you know, it's, it, it doesn't necessarily lead to the most inclusive teaching practices. 
I find myself struggling now to diversify my syllabus, to bring in different viewpoints, because that's not how I was trained. And it's like the the unfunded mandate, right? You need to improve diversity, equity, inclusion, but you never learned how to do that. And we're not going to train you how to do that. You need to be able to switch seamlessly among all these modalities, but you never learned how to teach when you were in graduate school and we're not providing any resources to help you do this. I just feel like professors, I think, have a hard time acknowledging that they don't know what they're doing, but I would bet that most of us don't know what we're doing. I would think that's right. Between just the process of delivering material in a way that's good for students to learn from, to managing TAs and how to get TAs across the board to be consistent, Mm -hmm. you know, there's no how to manage TA learning either, which is an important part of delivering material and assessing students when you have these large classes. Yeah. One thing I do in one of my classes that I think is nice is I have debates Okay. in my international law class and I, I assign them sides, but I also make them write up information for their side and then a counter argument from the other side and then a rebuttal to that So it makes them look at all aspects of the argument, even if they have a very strong view one way. Mm -hmm. I find that to be somewhat helpful in getting some, getting diverse ideas out there because a lot of the debates that I do are in a human rights setting. Okay. And, you know, it's so easy to just fall into, oh, we should always protect human rights all the time. And we never think about the implications of some of these things like, having criminal courts that are going to prosecute individuals for human rights crimes, there's a lot of literature out there that says, if you are going to do this, the individuals who know they might be prosecuted have an incentive to not give up and just fighting harder and harder. And there's this peace versus justice debate um, that's out there. And I think, you know, students have never really thought about that. It's just, we should punish people for human rights crimes without thinking of implications like that. Yeah, And so I think having debates and making students think about both sides can help get a diverse set of ideas out there, not just in the human rights area, but in a lot of different issue areas where you want students to think in terms of another person's perspective that's not their own. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great. That's a great idea. But I was thinking more along the lines of when we were trained in international relations, we were trained in like the paradigms of you know, the theoretical perspectives through which to view the world, but not really all of them, right? And so kind of the more critical approaches, I don't remember spending very much time concentrating on that. But also, I didn't know about the Howard School of International Relations until relatively recently. I didn't ever read articles about colonialism and decolonialism at the center of Cold War foreign policy. The way that the textbooks that I had always used and known about that talked about, you know, the, the founding of America in terms of a series of foreign policy actions of like treaties and wars with European powers completely ignored that those Europeans just 
claimed the land from the indigenous people. Like why, why could Jefferson buy the Louisiana purchase from France? Like what gave France the right to it, right? And these were not ever ideas that, I don't know, I feel like I missed out on this entire way of looking at international relations and foreign policy because that's not how we were trained. Our training put white dudes at the middle, you know, in the center. And I keep telling people, I feel like I need, I'm doing a second PhD in my own subject matter <laughs> to try and fill the gaps. I don't know. Do you ever feel that way that like, I mean, obviously there's so much to know and we can't possibly know all of it, but I don't know. This is the thing that kind of keeps me up at night a little bit. Well, so I agree that we learned the big paradigms and they were all basically Western ideas in those paradigms. One theoretical perspective that I've really kind of latched onto is dependency theory, mm-hmm. which was very big and kind of had its roots in Latin America. And I try to teach dependency theory, not necessarily as much as the other paradigms, because there's not a lot out there that students can read on that. But I try to I try to make sure they know that something like this is out there, that there's a different way of looking at how the world works. Yeah. Um, and dependency theory is really about industrialized states making developing states dependent on them and that there's this cyclical process that just will never end. And I think that actually has parallels to our academic approach that we have learned the white man European way of learning and that suppresses a lot of other things that we learn from that and we teach that and then the next people teach that. And so working with the way you're thinking about trying to teach and get out of that rut I think a lot of people need to take that perspective if we're going to get out of that rut. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm complaining a lot and that's who I am, but it seems like there are these expectations, you know, especially with the with the enhanced focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like those, those are buzzwords right now that are hopefully being turned into useful and productive policies to expand the academy to groups that had been previously excluded. But again, somehow we're supposed to just figure out how to do it. I don't know. I, I, yeah. Okay. I, I'm just kind of going around in circles, but this is something that I worry about, especially, you know, I don't know what the demographic profile of the typical Davis student is, but, you know, at UIC, we've got a lot of first generation, a lot of students of color, a lot of students who are Pell eligible. And, you know, the old way of thinking about the world doesn't match their lived experiences. And so I think it's worthwhile to figure out a different approach, but there's got to be something better than trial and error. I know I'm on the DEI committee in our department, which was actually just formed this year. And that committee, I think, is a good, it, we aren't talking about how to deliver teaching material, but I think having a committee and a group of people to kind of brainstorm together about how to deal with DEI issues is really helpful so that we're not all on our own trying to figure this out. And you can share best practices. And, you know, once you start getting practices that are actually established. And so there might be some forum for that to have a committee type setting for trying to figure out how to teach in a way that is inclusive as opposed to exclusive in terms of the 
lived experiences that we're, we're trying to get across. Yeah, I mean, I guess what my worry is, is that, you know, people are set in their ways, they think the way they think. And it's one thing to say, we want to attract graduate students from a variety of backgrounds, or we want to attract new faculty from a variety of backgrounds. But what I worry about is when we say, hey, if you look at your American foreign policy course, you have letters, you know, uh, Martin Luther King's letters from Birmingham jail, but that's it, <laughs> you know, and you, we need to, let's look at other writings. I don't know. I think professors hate to look stupid. And especially with the idea of like academic freedom that professors are supposed to be able to study and teach. I mean, obviously within the bounds of propriety, but basically what they want. And then to come along and say, well, here's a way to do it better. I don't know. I envision a lot of pushback. I agree. And, I, and you can't make people change their classes, but I right. think this is going to be a process, not a cut point. And I think as we move forward, as pe people are starting to become more and more open to these kind of ideas. And so if we start talking about them now, we can't necessarily change the ideas of the people, you know, who have been in the profession for 30 years, but we can start to provide information on how to address these issues for people who are coming up. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about work-life balance and maybe my work and life are out of balance such that these problems in the workplace or challenges in the workplace take on greater relevance because I don't have anything in my life to take up my time. I don't know. When you think about the profession, about political science, about UC Davis, like what are the things that you think about in terms of how you want to interact with the institutions and the field going forward. I feel like we're at an inflection point, right? The pandemic has changed so much that it seems a ripe time for making changes. So have you given any thought to changes you would like to make about how you approach the job, the discipline going forward? I would like to change how I teach in particular. Okay. I'm about to start working on a proposal to develop a, I think they call them flipped classes where the lecture material is recorded and students can watch that on their own time, where the class time is dedicated to actual discussion and activities and, and those kind of things. And I would, I got some of that from teaching online and realizing some of the pedagogical benefits from some of the things that come with that. And I would like to have more discussion in my classes, but if I have to lecture during that time, there's no room for that. Yeah. And so I'm hoping to get that in my classes, right? I told you about the debates that I have mm -hmm. in my international law class. I'd like to do more of that kind of thing and get the students involved in thinking about these issues. So that's how I would say I want to change my teaching approach. In terms of my research approach, it's the work-life balance issue yeah. for me. And I think that hopefully the pandemic has taught people that there is a need for a work-life balance mm -hmm. and that work can't dictate everything. And I think the profession needs to really step back and think about that issue. I would like to say they're going to, 
I'm not going to be that optimistic about it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be completely pessimistic because I think a lot of people had experiences during the pandemic that changed how they think about what should be done and what other people should be doing in the profession. Do you think those experiences though were distributed consistently across the professorate though? I feel like women, single parents, caregivers have come to these realizations and I don't know how widespread that is. I mean, do you have a sense of whether or not this is a subset of the discipline who feels this way, or do you think it's more widespread? I agree that it's a subset of the discipline that feels this way strongly. Okay. I think that there has been a realization by people who are not having as much trouble in the pandemic situation that, you know, there are tenure cases coming up, there are merits coming up, and they have to realize, look, these individuals had a really hard time dealing with what was happening in their families or their lives Mm -hmm. that might have made it hard for them to get as much work done as they should have. Right. And that is built into our merit and tenure process right now. And so I think that's forcing people to think about the fact that this is an issue. And I think it's going to be hopefully something they realize is a continuing issue. So, you know, I've heard people suggest like faculty should get, especially caregiving faculty should just get course releases so that they can focus on their research and get their productivity back up. But then at the same time, it's like the productivity standards themselves seem somewhat arbitrary. And so should we not go back to expecting the same things that we did before and just say, you don't have to do as much? I don't know. I I also see the move toward getting rid of tenure at a lot of institutions as another possible way that this could go, which might not be for the best. Or maybe is for the best. I don't know. I, I see benefits and costs when I talked about my own work-life imbalances in the getting tenure process. I think part of why it makes it worth it is you know that you're going to have job security and that's what you're working for. And that's your goal. And that's your reward for doing whatever you do to get tenure. Then the question is, is that the right way to do it? Is it worth losing six or seven years of your life to get job security? And I think that is probably something that people disagree on. Yeah. And I don't think there's any answer to it. I feel like I'm having an existential crisis. Why? I don't know. I think I just feel restless. I've been under a lot of pressure. I feel like the students are under a lot of pressure. I've had some bad, well, actually I had, I had one really terrible semester where basically everything went wrong in my teaching. And I feel a little burned by that because some people would be just like, it was a semester in the middle of a pandemic. It's an outlier, move on. But part of it is also like, this is something I love and I get a lot out of seeing my students learn. And I feel like the joy in that has diminished somewhat. And so then it's like, I'm doing all this work. I don't have the job security of tenure. There's nothing else I want to do, but I just have this like dissatisfaction about the whole thing. And I don't know what to do about that. I don't know. Maybe if I just 
took a nap for a year and then <laughs> tried again. But that's not an option either. I don't know. But I just feel like something's got to give. I want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. But I can only be part of the solution if everybody recognizes there is a problem. And if they don't, then that's just like fighting against the stream. And that's frustrating. So I don't know. Well, I think one thing that has happened after the pandemic is there's a lot of discussion about people who have been thinking about quitting academia and doing something else. And I think if enough people are expressing that type of opinion, that might make a difference because you can't lose a significant percentage of your faculty and not have to rethink how things are going. You see, I worry about that as well, though, because there are way more PhDs being produced every year than there are faculty positions. And so I feel like it would take an awful lot of people leaving before institutions would feel that. To some administrators, I think we're just replaceable cogs in the wheel. I, I think that is true, but I also think there's a lot of administrators that view us as dispendable cogs that don't need to be replaced. Oh, great. And so we have to request hiring positions every year and not everyone gets what they need and not everyone even gets, if you have retirements or people go to another institution, you don't always get those lines back. Yeah. And so I think administrators are going to use this as a chance to cut down faculty as well. And that will be felt in the department. And it'll be felt by our students. Like I just, part of me is just in complete disbelief about how little the education of undergraduate students seems to rate with a lot of people. There's all this talk about bringing in grant money because that's it, you know, that enriches the institution and some areas are going to bring in way more grant money than others. Does that mean that those other disciplines shouldn't be at the university anymore? Or faculty can just do more with less and that somehow that's going to help serve our students. I think for the most part, faculty want to be there for students to do their best to encourage students to help them find their own path in life, all this stuff. So we keep adjusting with budget cuts and hiring freezes and, you know, we make it work somehow. And I feel like a lot of people, institutions have gotten to the point, and I think the pandemic accelerated this, that there's nothing more to give. There's nothing more. I don't have it. I can't do more because there's nothing left. So that hurts faculty mental health and it hurts our students because they're not getting the best of us because we're so stretched thin. And if the point of an institution of higher education is to actually educate students, that seems like not the best way to go about running an institution. I agree. So if you could go back to the beginning, would you be a professor today? No, I would be in a different position in a different substantive issue area. I probably would have done computer science and I could sit behind a computer and code and not deal with people. But I think following the pandemic, following some 
personal issues. Sure. I've rethought the whole losing six years, seven years of my life to getting tenure, almost losing my marriage because of that. How much life did I give up even after that to keep publishing? Mm-hmm. My calibration has changed and I look back and I don't think that was worth it. Yeah. And so I wouldn't have done it. I think it's brave that people are leaving academia for other things because there's a lot of reasons financially that might be a risky proposition. I might be wrong about this, but I think that a lot of the people that are doing that are not single or not single parents or, you know, not financially dependent only on themselves. I think a lot of people who have the luxury of making that kind of choice are in a different situation than we are. I think we need faculty group therapy because I think a lot of people feel these things, but where does anybody have the option to talk about them? Because we're supposed to know everything and be put together. And my rebellion has been that I wear jeans to teach now. I was told that I shouldn't do that as a female faculty member because my students wouldn't respect me. And I decided they're lucky I'm wearing pants. And if they don't respect me because I'm wearing jeans, then they wouldn't respect me if I, weren't, if I were wearing dress pants. So now I only teach in jeans. I went to lunch with a friend who's a full professor and was kind of in this almost group therapy kind of way, expressing to him my struggles. And he said when he got promoted to full professor, that's when he felt more relaxed. So it wasn't just getting tenure, it was the full professor. And and his comment was, and then I felt like just doing nine to five was okay. And I think that says a lot about what we expect of ourselves and others in academia to think nine to five is a lower standard. Yes, slacking. Yes. You know, that's not just true in academia. There are so many people that have multiple jobs and have to have multiple jobs. And so, I mean, I think there's just a systemic problem with this desire to just work and work and work by some people and also the financial need to just work and work and work that some people have, you know, no choice. And I think that's a tough position to be in. This is not sustainable. It's not. Especially if you don't have a spouse at home or a partner at home who is either also bringing in a nice salary or who is taking care of the day-to-day things about being an adult in the world. It's hard. Well, Heather, I really appreciate you. It's always wonderful to have somebody who understands the struggles we go through and and is willing to sit and listen while we kvetch about them. So I want to thank Professor Heather Elko McKibben, an associate professor at the University of California at Davis Political Science. Thank you so much for joining me in the classroom today. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end of this session. It was very therapeutic for me to talk to Dr. Heather Elko McKibben from the University of California at Davis Political Science Department. Join me next week in the Politics Classroom, a podcast of UIC Radio. That's all I've got for this week. Class dismissed.